Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies, I'm J.F. Martel. Jean Cocteau's cinematic rendition of the classic fairy tale La Belle et la Bête hides its weirdness behind a thin yet bedazzling facade of glitter and sentiment. The original story, which as Phil points out in what follows may go back to the very dawn of human consciousness, is like the lunar path we discussed in our recent episode on the moon card in the tarot, a path beset by deceptions, illusions, and sorcery. Unlike the Disney version that most of us are familiar with, Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast preserves that mercurial element, and that's what made it a perfect focus for what you're about to hear, a discussion on the intersection of love, consciousness, and the weird. Cocteau's film, of course, is a great work of art, and great works of art have a way of luring us to these strange places where things we assumed were fixed and immutable start to move on their own and to change. That claim was the central conceit of my book, Reclaiming Art in the Age of Artifice, which we'll be discussing in our next episode. I bring this up because next month I'll be offering a course on the online learning platform NeuroLearning that's all about this. Titled Art and Contemplation, the course aims to equip its participants with perspectives and tools for turning the exploration of artworks into a spiritual divinatory practice. The course spans eight live weekly sessions, 90 minutes each, and it starts on May 10th. You can register by going to neurolearning.com. It'll be a trip, so I hope to see you there. I'd be a poor podcaster if I didn't also mention the Weird Studies Patreon, an online community without whose support Phil and I would be doing something other than Weird Studies right now, and also the Weird Studies music album, containing a dozen ambient gems by our resident composer, my brother Pierre-Yves Martel, who, like Phil, holds the rare distinction of being both a beauty and a beast. You can find the album on Pierre-Yves' Bandcamp page. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Jean Cocteau for the first time. Mm. Belle et la Bête, Beauty and the Beast, mm. 1946. Mm. You sound like a beast right now. Oh. I'm the Belle. beauty and you're the beast. Mais non, la bête. Vous voulez mes roses. Ah, what a fantastic movie. I love the voice for the Beast. And my theory is that, you know how there's like a cool guy voice in American film? Yeah. Uh, or at least maybe a certain era of American film. The sort of, in a world gone mad. Two-pack-a-day voice. Yeah, that's right. My theory is that there is a French version of that. The cool guy voice. But it's raspy. Yeah, it's raspy. It's a little tinnier. Then uh, it's not as deep as the American. A little bit more through the nose, you know, and and, in the back of the throat. (laughs) (laughs) So true. What an amazing movie. 
What a beautiful, mm. dreamlike wonder of a film. Um, yeah. And so rich. Such a good choice. This was one of Phil's ideas to do this film. And um, at first I was like, okay, sure. And then for some reason, well, as usually happens, then it ended up being connected to everything else I'm thinking about these days and being exactly <laughs> what we great. should be talking about on so many levels. So I'm really happy to be talking about it. I haven't seen many of Cocteau's films. I saw Orphe a long time ago. I've read a couple of his plays, La Machine Fernande. I saw Sandra Poet, but I can't even remember that. But I'm a big admirer of Cocteau as a man, as an artist. I think he was a very admirable fella, very talented, multidisciplinary. Mm -hmm. But of course, for him, it was all poetry. So when he wrote a novel, he'd, he'd have the title of his novel, and underneath he'd put like, Poésie de Roman. So novel poetry or film poetry, or to him, it was all mm. poetry, or maybe more specifically or more appropriately, he would say it was something like poesy. I feel like that's an important thing to understand about who Cocteau was as a creative figure, because, you know, if you talk about an artist, the obvious first question to ask is, in what medium is this artist an artist? Right. And Cocteau, is an, his media are, are many. He's an artist in many media. And with that habit of his of talking about any work that he was doing, if it's a novel, poésie de roman or whatever, that kind of gives you a sense of like an artist whose idea lies prior to any particular realization in any particular medium, that he's about something more radical than an artistic statement in film or in the novel or in music or whatever. It's about... Poesy. It's about the poetry that is in all things, that is in life. Exactly. And, you know, in talking about him allows us to bring to the surface a certain tension in modern art theory pertaining to the importance of medium, right? Because, of course, we've talked a lot about McLuhan mm. and about Greenberg and the centrality of medium. Medium specificity. Yeah, medium specificity. The medium shaping the entire, th like the artist being shaped essentially by his or her medium. And that's one mm. end of the wedge. But the other end, which you find in Cocteau and in, um, I guess, artists like Oscar Wilde would be one of these artists. And Cocteau was really close to Jacques Maritain, who's a, an amazing philosopher, inexcusably little known, I guess, in the English, Anglo-Saxon world and probably in the French world too. He was a Thomist, so a follower of Thomas Aquinas, but really a modernizer of uh, Thomist theory. He started off as a Bergsonian, then he kind of switched over. Then a kind of oh, a apostate, I think, of Bergsonianism, right? Didn't yeah. He, didn't he turn against it? Yes. Uh, I think, I'm, I may be misremembering, but I, I think that his Bergsonianism led him to the abyss, like he was going to commit suicide, him and his uh, wife, who was his partner, right? Uh, his, his intellectual partner. Um, Jesus. And uh, I believe, or I think maybe Bergson saved them from suicide. And then I think that's what it was. Bergson saved them from a kind of existential angst that was taking them, you know, typically French fashion right to the, into the abyss. And then uh, they found Bergson, I believe. And then eventually, though, he turned to Thomas Aquinas and kind of saw, and I know what he saw was missing in Bergson, I think, the kind of 
the fixity part, the other part. Uh, <laughs> anyways, but we don't have to get into that. But he went he went to Thomas Aquinas then, uh, and he wrote a book. He wrote several books, but one of them is called Creative Intuition and in Art and Poetry, in which he really develops this idea of poetry as being operative in all of the fine arts, so to speak. So as the kind of central crux of what it oh, means really? to create art. And I think Cocteau probably felt that that resonated with some intuition of his and and kind of just owned it. And then he would work in film and theater and poetry. He, he would write novels. He, would, he was a visual artist. He'd do all kinds of things. And uh, for him, it all came down to this basic poetic instinct that defines the artist and the art making process regardless of medium yeah i mean he's a little bit like sergey diaghilev who was his impresario his sponsor right yeah. yeah and for the folks at home who maybe don't know who diaghilev is he's a russian aestheticist who came up in the late 19th century in the, the kind of mauve decade of the 1890s and became a, an impresario whose genius was it's almost like a Something I say about Duke Ellington. Duke Ellington was, of course, a great musician, wonderful jazz pianist, underrated jazz pianist, and, of course, jazz composer and arranger. But part of his genius as a composer was his ability to find the sound, the voice of different musicians and to understand that that voice, not just the instrument, but the voice manifested by the instrument by that particular person right. could be a color or like material, like clay that he could mold in his compositions and arrangements. And so part of Ellington's medium as an artist is the medium of the human being, of human energies. And I feel like, you know, Diaghilev was that kind of guy. So you know, very famous collaboration, perhaps the most famous is the Rite of Spring, a collaboration that Diaghilev did with a young Igor Stravinsky, composing a score to a scandalous ballet, a score that still, after more than a hundred years, is sending shock waves, not only through the classical music world, but through jazz and popular music. This is a tremendous score, but like it's part of a whole collaboration involving a sort of theosophist, mystical painter named Nicholas Rorich, who one of these days we might circle back to, um, the dancer Nijinsky, um, Fucking, I'm forgetting all of the names, but like, you know, that was Diaghilev's genius was being able to just find creators with singular visions and understanding how he could take those energies and mold them yeah. into these fantastical, dramatic works of art. Like, for example, Rite of Spring. Diaghilev's motto apparently was, astonish me. Right. That's what he told Cocteau. Et, et, on moi. et on moi. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah, that if you were an artist and you and he saw something in you that he wanted to use and he had an idea for one of his shows that he wanted to mount, you know, if you asked him, well, what are you looking for? He would just like astonish me, you know, bring your A game. Show me something I haven't seen before. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my feeling is that Cocteau was that kind of guy as well. He's also, you know, some astonishing collaborations with composers, for example, Francis Poulenc, who in many ways reminds me of Cocteau. He's the kind of guy who, I don't know if he ever actually said, Cocteau actually said to anybody, astonish me, but like that seems to be his thing. He wants to be astonished and he wants to astonish the people who are engaging with his art. And Belle la Bête is, uh, or Beauty and the Beast, is uh, a very important piece in his oeuvre, in his corpus of work. I mean, it's 
It's probably his best known film to this day. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. That it's that's the film that's probably the most watched, if only because it's the precursor of the famous Disney adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, which borrowed heavily from him because he made certain modifications to the fairy tale that Disney incorporated into their own retelling. It's such a beautiful, mystical kind of film that I think really captures the essence of the fairy tale. And also the, the, okay, there's capturing the essence of the fairy tale the way Disney does it, which is basically that they, they get really smart people to write their scripts. And these people kind of find the, what this fairy tale is about. And then they code it into their retelling in such a way that it's, um, I do think that every Disney film has an exoteric and esoteric meaning. I think that's true. And I think that's intended. At least if it's not intended, then I don't know. It's pretty amazing. Uh, but the exoteric and the esoteric in Disney is ultimately overcoded. It's not like a symbol in a Disney film will become this slippery, vacuous, kind of not vacuous, but enigmatic object that will lure you down into a place where things become multivalent and overdetermined. It's overcoded. Like there's, it's self-contained, I find. And it's hard, it's hard for me to explain this, but I find that Disney films are more ideological. Whereas in Cocteau, what you're seeing is almost like taking the, you take the whole ideological veneer of a Disney Beauty and the Beast and strip away or, or just free the sign so that they can become symbols again. And all of a sudden, the same story becomes pluriform, multivalent, multifarious, strange, dreamlike in a way that invites you to go in and think for yourself and kind of dwell as a person in this forest of symbols as opposed to kind of behold this 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 like overcoated messaging that's giving you a very clear interpretation of the fairy tale. Because of course this is an ancient story that Cocteau and Disney are working with, ancient material. And um one study suggests it's as much as four thousand years old. Yes. In a sense, it needs to be because the archetypes involved in the story, the archetypes of which the story is made, are so primordial. And I'm not even talking as a Jungian here. I'm just the idea of a, of a young woman marrying a man and, and the experience of that encounter, especially in societies that were patriarchal, where young women were married to older men and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. Just capturing that dynamic... I mean, of course, stories like this were told 4,000 years ago. The symbols of animality and humanity, just the basic oppositions involved in the story are just so primordial that, I mean, it's one of those rabbit holes that just will just keep going if you want to go down there. I mean, we'll never, we could talk about this forever. And Cocteau's film, as opposed to Disney's, I would argue, does this. It shows us this. It shows us the slipperiness and the, the enigmatic nature of the symbols involved. Something that's already come up in this conversation is the fidelity of this film to the imaginative world of the child, of children. Yeah. This is a fairy tale that speaks to not only to children, but to something deeper in ourselves that we might call, I mean, it's a cheesy expression, an inner child, but the part of us that never got tired of these kinds of stories. Yeah. And there's a kind of invitation of children to disport themselves upon their native heath. I mean, the, the world of the imagination that this film so effortlessly conjures. But it also is an invitation to us jaded adults 
to open ourselves to a kind of enchantment. The film begins with a text written out in Cocteau's hand, and this is what it says. Children believe what we tell them. They have complete faith in us. They believe that a rose plucked from a garden can plunge a family into conflict. They believe that the hands of a human beast will smoke when he slays a victim, and that this will cause him shame when a young maiden takes up residence in his home. They believe a thousand other simple things. I ask of you a little of this childlike sympathy, and, to bring us luck, let me speak four truly magic words, childhood's open sesame. Once upon a time. And that's how the film starts with this kind of epigraph. Right. Yeah. Because the thing is, the temptation when you're adapting a, a fairy tale as a modern storyteller is to kind of rationalize a lot of the elements in it so that they make sense, right? <laughs> so that the changes and the permutations of the story don't seem to just come out of nowhere. Right. And he doesn't do that. He just tells it to you like a fairy tale. Yeah. And so that's, I guess that's the, the a, a challenge for especially, probably especially at that time in France and just post-war France, which was a highly intellectual culture, to have to uh, engage with a film that is so childlike in its sensibility and so true to the material. If you're open to it, it really does cast the spell. The film really does kind of enchant you in a weird way, bring you into kind of dream state which is the state the children are in when they're listening to stories, right? There's a um, little essay, little thousand-word essay in a book by David Thompson called Have You Seen, which is a dumb title. It's a book of a thousand little essays on different films. Do you know this guy? Yes, I love that book. I find his attitude towards Kubrick a little puzzling because it feels like when he's writing about Kubrick that he has saved up little insults and put-downs that he has rehearsed for years. Yeah. He just can't wait yeah. to like let fly a few zingers that he has saved up for Kubrick. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, so he's um, uncharacteristically uncritical of Belle Labette. It's just, you know, his little essay on this film breathes the complete enthusiasm of somebody who has successfully accepted Cocteau's invitation to enter the world of a child. Talking about all of the many marvels of this film, Thompson writes, the secret to it all is that Cocteau set out to make a film that would stir adults. Along the way, he discovered the child's imagination too. It's an extraordinary and very encouraging fusion of pictures for kids and the surrealist art tradition, yet totally true to the diffused but heated sexuality of the original tale. Mm. It's also the best opportunity that would ever come the way of Jean Marais, statuesque and handsome, but waiting to have a little bit of the big cat pumped into him. Further, the realistic basis of the film and Alcan, um, Henri Alcan, the photographer. The, the cinematographer, yeah. Yeah, approach to magic are so very down-to-earth and practical. What keeps the film modern and dreamlike are things like Bell's way of moving without effort or friction, and mm. the very adult Freudian understanding of symbols. Children at the movies require no special care or condescension. They expect genius. I quite like that. <laughs> I love that. That's so true. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is perfect. And perfect intro to the, our topic because, well, where do we start? I mean, I could maybe, go on maybe and just on. by recounting the story because I actually don't assume everybody has knows the story. I think there's a lot of people who would see Beauty and the Beast and think, oh, fuck, Disney, and like refuse to touch it. So... Sure. Let's just quickly say what the story is as Cocteau tells it. Right. 
So we have um, a family, a bourgeois kind of family in a French port city. It seems to be maybe, I don't know, late 16th, early 17th century kind of- Yeah, uh, they got those hats, yeah. you know. And the, the what do you call them? The, the frills around the neck and all that stuff. The rough. Yeah, the rough. And this family is without a mother. So there's a father with three daughters and a son. And the father is a businessman and he is in debt. He's got massive debts. His creditors are after him. He's waiting for this shipment to come in that will solve his problems. But when his shipment comes in, his creditors grab it before <laughs> before he can claim it and then distribute the profits as he would like. And so basically the family's bankrupt. On the night that he learns this, the father goes wandering uh, tries to get home in the middle of the night. And earlier that day, as he was going to town to get his money, because he thought this, his problems were solved, he asked his daughters what they would like as a gift from him. And two of the daughters are quite selfish. They're obsessed with finery and beauty and social social credit and that sort of thing. These are yeah. they're kind of shallow, superficial girls. And then the third daughter, who I thought was the youngest, but it seems to be that she's, according to Kokoto, she's the middle daughter in this story, because at one point she refers to the other one of them as younger. But traditionally in the fairy tale, she's the youngest daughter. And I think that's important for reasons we can get into later. But anyways, the third daughter basically plays the role of the mother and the maid. She does everything around the house. She cleans the house. She's she's incredibly beautiful. Her name is Belle, which means beautiful in French. And she is this she's an embodiment of the three transcendentals. She's all about truth. She can't lie. She's good. She's like her heart is fundamentally good and she's absolutely beautiful. She's treated like dirt by her sisters. So the two older sisters, I'll just call them that for the sake of brevity, the two older sisters ask for all kinds of, you know, pets and, and clothing or whatever. I want and, a monkey. Yeah, one of them wants a monkey, right? And she gets it at the end. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's right. Uh, and the other one asks for other things. And Belle asks only for a rose because she says there are no roses around here. So I'd like a rose. So her father and her sisters laugh at her for asking for something so worthless, right? And then the father goes off. Then the father loses his fortune and that night decides to go home after dark, gets lost and finds himself wandering into the wilderness outside the precincts of the known, the familiar and the coded into the liminal zones. And he eventually ends up on this estate, this princely estate that is completely choked with weeds and, and brambles and vines, overgrown, ancient, forgotten place. And uh, well, why don't you pick up from there so we can just kind of tennis ball this thing. So he's, he sort of, he calls out, is anybody here? Blah, blah, blah. And unseen hands open the door before him. Unseen hands open a the stable door for his horse. He finds himself walking down a long hallway of candelabra held by human hands and like human arms sticking out of the wall. Basically the, the sconces are human arms sticking out of the wall. Yeah. They're disembodied. They don't seem to be attached to people, but there are these sort of arms and hands that sort of do everything in this strange place. Uh, and he walks through this strange hallway and finds a banquet laid for him, but his host is nowhere to be found. 
He tries to pour himself a glass of wine and then one of these disembodied hands comes up from the middle of the table and grabs the flagon of, of wine and pours it for him. It's very, you know, sort of eerie. This is a world of, a world in which everything is animate, mm -hmm. in which everything is sentient. As he's eating his dinner in front of this enormous hearth. There are these columns on either side of the fireplace with faces carved in the stone. And those faces are actually like living faces, moving faces. One of my favorite moments in the film, this is a film, by the way, that is full of rifts. Oh, yeah. Uh, and one of my favorite rifts is a close-up of one of the faces in the hearth these stone faces that starts blowing smoke through its mouth and nose and then suddenly like stares open-eyed at the camera. It's, yeah. a, I, ah, it's a wonderful moment, just poetic. Po that's poesy, you know, this, these poetic images of the intelligence that shines back from every corner of this mysterious world. Everything returns your gaze. Anyway, the father is discombobulated by this and sort of wanders around this empty estate calling out, ask if anybody's there. And then finally, he sees some roses and he picks one and there's a sudden blast of wind and he's knocked to the ground and the beast steps out and says, you could have taken anything and I would have been fine with it. But the one thing you cannot take is my rose. And for that, you must die. Prepare yourself. You have 15 minutes to get your earthly affairs in order before I will kill you. And this beast is a tall, broad-shouldered, well, looks like a man, except the head is this kind of leonine, furry face with kind of wide cat-like inhuman eyes. The makeup, by the way, of this is amazing. Apparently, it took hours and hours to apply but in any event, this creature, this man-shaped beast appears seemingly from nowhere. And as the father begs for his life and tries to explain, I was only trying to find a gift for my daughter. The beast says, okay, well, then your daughter can return within three days in your stead and she will pay your debt, implying that he will kill the daughter in place of the father. And uh, if she doesn't want to, then the father has to return in three days and uh, permit himself to be killed. So the father returns home, tells his family the bad Everything. news that A, yeah. they're ruined, and B, he had the supernatural encounter with a beast and explains the terms of their deal. And of course, the you know mean sisters, it doesn't occur to them for a second that they would do something self-sacrificing. Because uh, the beast does father. leave it open. He's like, the, the beast asks for one of his daughters. He doesn't specify. Right. Yeah. Like so, which one? Yeah. yeah. Right. And only Belle has the purity of heart to say like, well, you know, life without you is not worth living. So I would rather sacrifice myself to the beast. So she returns to this magical place with a horse, Manifique, that knows the path, you know, in one of those pocket dimensions where you can't find your way back. She goes to this place. She encounters the beast. At first is overcome with terror and faints. Little bit by little bit, she learns to tolerate the beast's company. The beast is immediately smitten with her. And every night he appears at seven o'clock as she's eating dinner. And every night he asks her to marry him. And every night she says no. 
And at first, it's a kind of disgusted, appalled no. But over time, she starts to see his qualities, that he's a gentle and kind creature with a certain nobility of bearing and nobility of mind. She also begins to tame him in a way, to to make him more human, because he seems to occasionally or frequently forget his humanity and, and he reverts into this bestial state and she brings him back out of that constantly. We'll, we'll talk right. about that, but yeah. But at the same time, he also brings her into the world of the beast. Like it goes both ways. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, for example, one of the most moving parts of the film and also another rift, a, a moment of true strangeness, like kind of at one point in the film, she is looking for the beast and she spies him through some shrubbery, crouched down by the end of a pond, oh, yeah. drinking out of the pond like an animal yeah. and like, you know, shaking his mane to whisk the water drops away and so on. And it, he looks entirely like an animal, like this man-shaped animal. Yeah. Reminds me of the scene in uh, in Dracula where Jonathan Harker sees Dracula climbing down the wall of the castle to go hunting. And mm. just like this animal wearing, you know, the livery of a nobleman. It's really kind of disturbing. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful, I mean, that's a surrealist touch, like seeing the beast, you know, one of my favorite songs, I think I've mentioned it on one of the shows is uh, the Nick Lowe song, The Beast and Me. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, this is all about the beast in me, you know, the beast that lies in every uh, human soul. And particularly, I think, in the souls of men, uh, the lyrics of the beast in me certainly speak to, uh, they certainly speak to me as a guy who has yeah. a beast in him uh, that I try to keep chained up. And what's shocking is seeing the beast showing through the features of the human. Yes. And this is something that happens continually through this film, partly because the actor... Jean Marais, who plays the bonehead, well-meaning but stupid human lover. Paramore, yeah. Yeah, we, I, I forgot to mention him at the beginning. He, Avenant, yeah. He's a friend of the family, but he's courting Belle. He wants to marry Belle. Belle refuses to marry him because she wants to devote herself to her father um, and help her father. And uh, at the very beginning of the film, there's a kind of a kind of this almost disturbing scene where Avenant really imposes himself on her and kind of just grabs her and he might be about to assault her when Belle's brother comes in and stops this from happening. So this guy's this super handsome, perfect kind of, you know, uh, upper middle class French gentleman. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And yet- Bit uh, of a rogue. And yet, a yeah, yeah, and yet, uh, bestial internally, you know, whereas yeah. the beast looks like a beast, but is deeply has a really good heart. This guy looks has a noble soul, looks handsome, but has a kind of rotten inside. Right. But my point is, it's played by the same actor. The yeah. Avenant and the beast are played by the same guy. Correct. Which yeah. is something that allows us to really feel the the poetry of that moment, where you see the beast in a human being. And that moment where the beast is just unselfconsciously drinking out of the pond is, is a moment like that. But to jump back a step, you know, I was talking about when we were talking about how it's not only that Belle brings out the humanity and the beast, it's also that the beast brings Belle into the domain of the animal. There's right. a later moment where they're talking and Belle says, sort of out of nowhere, come drink out of my hands. And she cups some water in her hands. And, you know, in the soundtrack, you hear like this sort of 
slurping, this animal slurping. And, you know, he like buries his face in her hands and he looks up at her and says, doesn't this disgust you? And she says, no, I like it. Yeah. It's a lovely moment. It's a very erotic moment. Yes. It's a moment of true sensuality. And it's a moment where she's sort of like allowing herself to literally to touch the animal. Like she's touching him. And later, like in the same scene, she starts stroking him and he says, he says, you you stroke me like you would stroke an animal. And she's like, yes, but you are an animal. It's a very funny little moment that's left hanging unresolved. So Yeah. It's not a kind of uh, my fair lady thing where the beast is just this rough, unfinished thing. And she comes in you know, and and kind of imposes some humanity on him. It's much more of a a becoming other on both right in both terms. Like she's becoming animal and he's becoming human, and that, that's what that's where the alchemy happens, mm-hmm. and that's yep. what makes it different from, I guess, one of the differences that we could find between this and uh, the Disney version, which is much more um, categorical and it's. Well, yeah, as you would expect it, with, with from Disney. <laughs> well, it's tidied up and it's made domestic. And it's, so it's exactly. sort of like it's the old thing of like Big Bad Bill is Sweet William now. It's like, an, it's like I think that was a Van Halen song. Uh, <laughs> but it's the old idea of like, I can change him. Yes. You know, the idea yes. that you take the rough hewn guy and you bring him into civilization. And um, the Disney film, I think, makes it a rather more one directional thing, a civilizing thing. But actually, I think that Cocteau's version feels more ancient to me. It feels like it helps us understand why this tale is so old, apparently 4,000 years old or possibly older, at least according to one study, who knows. But it gives you the sense that the antiquity of the story is a function of the depth of the truth that it tells about human relationships, that human relationships of any kind, but human love relationships. And this is not just, you know, heterosexual relationships. This is love relationships of any kind. Yeah. You know, put it highfalutin terms, the earthly manifestation of the hieros gamas, the holy wedding, the coming together of alienated principles. Of, of opposites, right. A, a, right. a syzygy, a whole that has been made partial. And you have the key and you have the lock and it's the coming together and the reciprocity of these things, the finding of the other, each finding the other in themselves. You know, that is what's really going on in this story. If you ask me in my opinion. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, Not for nothing that one of the sacred tools of the beast is a key, by the way. Right. And not a key to any old thing, a key to the temple of Diana. Um, mm. we'll, we'll get there. But the problem is, and this is my own interpretation, but remember that the deal was that Belle would come to the beast's estate and then the beast would kill her in her father's stead, right? But he doesn't do that because he falls in love with her. So the father is dying, right? As we learn, like the father goes home and he falls ill and Belle has a magic mirror in which she can see her father dying. She knows that her father's sick and then she herself becomes ill because she's taken a vow to take care of her father. And now her father is dying because she's trapped with the beast and she can't leave. So as she gets sicker and sicker, the beast becomes more distressed, more worried about her. And finally she begs him, let me go see my father for a week and I'll come back. He agrees. And not only does he agree, but he entrusts everything 
on her. She, she, he basically gives her all yeah. the tokens of his power, of his magic power, his magic glove, his horse, and finally the key to a pavilion that's kind of tucked away on his estate, which is he calls the Pavilion of Diana. And he says, all the treasures you see here are just basically glamour. But in that pavilion is my true treasure. But I can't go in. No one can go into that pavilion. Not you, not me, no one. And this is the key. And I will give you this key. And if you want, you are perfectly free to not come back in a week, in which case I will die of a broken heart. And then you can come back and take my treasure. That's how much I trust you to do as you promise. And she agrees to these terms and then returns to the world of the living, the the mortal world, the ordinary world of her father and her family in the town with all these objects. She uses the glove. The glove is a teleportation glove. She just basically puts it on. She can just teleport anywhere. So she just appears in her room in this beautifully beautiful shot of her coming out. She actually seems to come out of a wall, right? When yeah. she, you just see her kind of come out of this wall and then slide down the wall. It's a beautiful, another rift. Um, mm. But she comes back as a kind of princess, right? Because she's wearing the clothes that the beast has given her. With a tiara and everything. The tiara with diamonds. She gives diamonds to her father, which immediately solves his problems. This penultimate act where she returns to her own world uh, reminds me of the hymn of the pearl of ancient Gnostic story about a prince who is sent down from this heaven-like realm of perfection into the dark fallen world that's called Egypt in the story. And he descends there and he slowly forgets where he comes from. And he has to remember that he's on this mission to, to go down into the world of change and can return to the world of the eternal. Anyways, so she comes as a princess, but then slowly she just ends up back in her spot as the kind of maid, right? Yeah. Um, as a drudge. And her sisters, her brother and um, uh, Avenant, the, uh, the paramour, they conspire to kill the beast and take the treasure. Right. Because she's unable to lie. So when they ask her about things, she just tells them everything. And, um, yeah. and so they decide to take advantage of that and they ultimately that fails. She ends up finding out that the, her brother and Evna are going to the estate on the magic horse to try to, to kill the beast. She uses the glove to get there beforehand and she finds the beast dying by the water, by the water in the woods. Meanwhile, her brother and Evna are trying to get into the pavilion of Diana. They're smart enough. They've played D&D. &D. They know you never use the front door because it's always trapped. <laughs> so they they climb up on the roof where there, there are glass panels on the roof and Avnam breaks the glass and descends into the treasure chamber, which is indeed filled with treasure. But there's also a statue of Diana there. The statue of Diana comes to life, shoots him with a bow. Avnam becomes the beast or a beast, falls dead in the treasure hoard. And then meanwhile, the the original beast is restored to his original form as a uh, beautiful and yet slightly saccharine priest, uh, priest, <laughs> prince. <laughs> <laughs> that would be so disappointing. Um, and then he yeah. became a priest. <laughs> Isn't time for Vespers? I'm out of here. Um, so no, he becomes a, a prince. And, um, but, you know, I read that Marlene Dietrich, when she saw the film, and you see the beast turn into this you know, slightly fey 
prince <laughs> um she she called out it's like where's my beautiful beast <laughs> <laughs> that's great which kind of is the point right now uh, and then yeah. bell and the beast who is now the prince literally ascend into heaven and uh disappear from view as they i guess they ascend to some kind of uh pleroma um <laughs> with yeah. the promise that they're gonna pick up dad on the way Yes, because that's very important that the father is rescued. Because ultimately, this is a very much a story about rescuing the father, an old mythic motif. That's a big part of it anyways. Yeah. I don't have much to say about it in terms of cinematography other than it's beautifully done. And there's a... It's so beautiful. The contrast between the two worlds is beautifully and subtly done. Like the uh, the world of the, the, the overcoated town world, the, norm, the mortal world is clearly inspired by Vermeer. The way the lighting is done, the way the interiors mm. are used and the, the diffuse mm. light coming in by the windows, the way that Belle is dressed like a Vermeer kind of character with a... That's the, true. The scarf around her head and everything. And so that's the world of limpidity, of clarity, where everything is clear. Everything can be seen. There are very few shadows. But then when you transition into the world of the beast, the other world, the fairy world, that world is all chiaroscuro, high contrast, expressionistic, you know, blades of light and pools of shadow, where the opposites are shown for what they are. Opposites, there's a clash of forces there. And that's what needs to be resolved. So the the, the lighting is unbelievably, unbelievably good. I, I want to say for its time, that's not quite true because there's plenty of great lighting at that time. But you can see how, um, let's just say that Cocteau and, and uh, what's his name again? Alcan. Yeah, kind of wrote an important chapter of the, sim- the modern cinematography book with this. So you, you can see all kinds of ways in which modern films have drawn upon Belle et la Bête from a technical perspective. It's really, really something. And of course, it is filled with these beautiful rifts, these beautiful images that pop out of the narrative, stand alone as their own kind of mini artworks within the film. The moment where Belle first arrives at the estate 
And oh, then they switch. She ascends that staircase. Yes, and then she enters the oh. the hallway, and it's all in slow motion. This beautiful, fluid mm-hmm. slow motion, and she's like just floating through this world, and it's just you can just sense in a way that I've seldom seen pulled off, you know, in in modern in in, in film in general, the sense of crossing into a, a, another world. It's very subtle, but it's very very powerful. Um, it's mm. almost like she's in a dream now, and you really yeah. feel it. The music, by the way, there is very dreamlike. The music is by Georges Auric, who is one of uh, Les Six, a group of composers in Paris in the early 20th century. And I'm not crazy about all of the music he composed for this. Some of it I find actually a little bit bombastic. By the way, Philip Glass wrote an opera, uh, an opera of a sort, basically an alternate soundtrack for this film where he composed voice parts, singing parts that line up perfectly or are supposed to line up perfectly with the moving lips of the characters. And so if you just turn the volume down on the original soundtrack and you can listen to it with Philip Glass's composed soundtrack where people are singing, all of the lines are spoken in the film. And to the, you know, minimalist, repetitive, motoric accompaniment of the Philip Glass ensemble, which if you've ever listened to anything by Philip Glass, you know what sound I'm talking about. I mean, in many ways, I actually, I prefer Philip Glass's music, but Arik's music for that one moment is fucking amazing because it sounds sort of, if you kind of squint, it sort of sounds like, you know, Palestrina counterpoint, like acapella, vocal counterpoint, or like, you know, chorus singing, but with the sounds sort of smudged, a little bit. It's redolent of this kind of deep past, just as you say, you know, that the visual language of the worldly parts are sort of Vermeer-esque. This is, uh, you know, maybe pulling our ears back to like Palestrina or someone like that, a, a 16th century contrapuntalist, but a little bit different, a little bit smudged, a little bit weird. You know, it's mm-hmm. an amazing musical moment setting off, an amazing visual moment as this beautiful woman who moves beautifully, just as David Thompson says, moving fluidly and without friction, ascending the staircase in slow motion, emerging into a shaft of light that lights up her profile and her flowing gown. It's exquisitely beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in a film. It's literally breathtaking. It'll knock the breath out of your body. Fucking amazing. It is. And I haven't heard the Philip Glass version, but I was just so pleasantly surprised by the soundtrack. I just found it, I don't know, so much more tasteful than a lot of the, the 19, mid-1940s soundtracks in English and language films. But yeah, I guess it, it, it's not Philip Glass. Um, <laughs> well, you know, we won't, <laughs> we won't criticize it for not being Philip Glass. but Right. You know. No, I know. Although I guess uh, I just did. <laughs> expressing expressing well, a preference. I, but. I would love to see what Philip Glass did with this film. Well, but. so much of the dreaminess of it comes out more fully right. in the opera version. There's something very odd that happens to spoken lines that have all of the verve and an inflection of a human being articulating those words conversationally in a conversational context. That all changes when you turn it into sung pitches, mm-hmm. you know, that, that retain the rhythm of the original spoken words, but instead you're singing the words, not speaking them. Right. It has a strange effect of like raising utterances to a kind of more abstract level, raising them to a level of a more abstract beauty and expression. 
Right. It makes everything that everybody is saying feel somehow more eternal. I don't know if I'm expressing it very well, but it's a very interesting kind of case study in how differently the same scene will play, whether it's spoken or sung. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and this, as you can imagine, makes the scenes in the realm of the beast, in that enchanted realm, feel all the more dreamlike and kind of archetypal mythic, you know? Right, 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 right. But I, I, But I don't want to get into that too much simply because, like, you haven't seen it. And probably the people listening to this are going to find this film most easily accessible streaming. And the only way you can hear the version with the Philip Glass opera is if you buy the Criterion Collection DVD and listen to it as an alternate. Is that where it is? Yeah, that's where it is. It's uh, as an alternate soundtrack. Um, okay. Another technical uh, or, or more um, medium specific point of interest right. for me was the editing. And I don't know how much of this is a vestige of the time and how much of it was intentional on Cocteau's part. I find that one of the hard things to do when you're editing is transitions. How do you transition from one scene to another? And it's especially difficult if you're making the film in the editing room, when you're making real changes to the to the narrative, when you're changing the order of scenes or stuff like that, because the way you shot the scene was with a particular sequencing in mind. If you change the sequence in post, then you're stuck with this problem of how do we transition from that scene to this one without it being jarring. And it took a while for filmmakers to kind of learn how to do that. And it's I don't think there's any real science to it to this day. It's always a challenge. It's a very mysterious thing, editing. It's very musical as a process. Um, and I think that a little bit of experience in music really goes a long way when it comes to editing film. Anyways, a lot of the transitions between scenes in this film are very jarring indeed. You'll cut to a scene and it seems like it's it's already started. You're not cutting to the beginning of a scene. You're cutting right in the middle of a shot and when something's happening. And, and this is something you'll see in other films of that time. But it really works in this because it really, I think establishes the oniric quality of time, especially in the world of the beast, where you, you'll mm. see most of these cuts happening. So that's part of why I think it's partially intentional. You know how in a dream there's a hiatus and you're suddenly somewhere else and something else yeah. is going on? Yeah. And yet there's this whole other new backstory now to what's... Yeah. Some of the scenes, some of the way the scenes transition in this film feels like that. It's really hard to know how much time she spends at the estate. There's no establishing shots moving between day and night telling you that we're, you know, that time is passing. You're in this kind of dreamlike, in a way, it might feel like it's all happening in a week. In a way, it might be several years. It's not several years, but it, it just feels, time feels elastic when you're in the world of the beast. Uh, at one point, we learned that when it's day in the mortal world, it's night in the world of the beast and vice versa. So, so everything's inverted. Inversion is such an important part of this movie. The inversion of everything, the animal and the human. And um, sorry, now I'm moving on to something else. Do you want to say something? Okay. So um, the version of this fairy tale that Cocteau was working with is the Madame de Beaumont version, the famous, the most famous version in France. And it dates back to the 18th century. And it's an, itself, it's an abridgment of a longer novel written just uh, shortly before then. So basically, we're talking about like 1750-something was when the De Beaumont version was published. And that's the one that bears the title La Belle et la Bête. So all the modern iterations, uh, basically, you can trace them all back to this one uh, publication, this one version. And what's interesting is that she could have called it La Belle et le Monstre, 
right? The, right. the beauty and the monster. And in a way that might have worked better because monstre is a masculine word, but la bête is a feminine word in French. So whenever they're talking, and this is peculiar in scenes where they're talking about the beast when, they're, when she's back home and her family's asking her questions about the beast, they constantly refer to the beast in the feminine. La is bête. She, yeah. La bête. Is she this way? Is she that way? What did she want? Because the word bête in French is feminine. And there's a peculiar emphasis on the definite article every time Beauty speaks to the beast. She's like, yes, the beast. No, the beast. Yeah, that's just a linguistic thing. I think it's just the way French works. Oh, is that? Well, she could. No, I mean, they could have turned them into proper nouns saying, non, bête. Uh, right. We bet. Yeah, because he, yeah, and you're right. You're, you're right. It is intentional because her name is Belle. So, Belle. Mm. So, when she's home, they don't say, hey, la Belle. They say, yeah. Bonjour, Belle. They talk, right. and, they, and yet, they, right, they do. That's right. They, the, the definite article becomes really important and significant. They, they, they both refer to each other in the feminine, which is strange, right? Another interesting thing is that the word bite in French, it's a noun and an adjective. As a noun, it means a beast, right? Like la bête à cette the seven-headed beast of the book of Revelation is a beast, a monster, a beast can also mean just any animal, just like it can in, in English. But as an adjective, bat means... Stupid. Stupid, but not quite stupid. Crudely stupid, or stupid in a... It's weird. It's like uh, something that shouldn't be stupid, but is. Hmm. You know, something that should know better is bat, right? So, hmm. bat means you're forgetting other shit that you know right now, and you're stupid because you're not really... Hmm. You know, so mm, it has which, that connotation. Which actually perfectly describes yes. the beast's yeah, condition. Yeah, because yeah, he's constantly forgetting his humanity. He reverts back into animality and then she has to kind of remind him and he's struggling, right? So we know that he goes off and kills things, deer, we think. He hunts them yeah. with his bare, with we, his clawed hands yeah. and then kind of comes in. T at one point, she's spying on him and he comes in at night after killing something because you hear it scream. And he comes in and he's looking at his hands and his hands are smoking because they've killed. Um, what a wonderful symbol. Right. A wonderful dreamlike symbol. One of the many things in this film feels like it is just stenciled from a dream, like it comes directly from a dream. Yeah, the idea, and this is something that Cocteau mentions in his little prologue that I read out earlier, that his body smokes, like smoke arises off his body. And this is an opportunity for more eye-wateringly beautiful visuals of uh, seeing the beast in high contrast lighting with smoke rising off of his fur gently. It's wonderful. But the idea that that is a symbol of shame, like it's his visibility to her as a beast. Yes. At least that's how I see it. Like at one point she hears a kerfuffle outside her door, opens her door and he's standing there and he's splattered with blood and smoke is pouring off his body. And she scolds him. Oh, you're covered in blood. You know, go clean yourself up. And he's and he's just like, don't look at me. Don't look at me. <laughs> you yeah. know, like this yeah. happens more than once, too. He he shrinks back from her gaze. This happens the first time she sees him as well when she he lays her delicately on her bed, but he's staring at her, and we get an extreme close-up 
of his face as he peers at her sleeping or like unconscious form. And then she wakes up and like is horrified again. And he's like, don't look at me. Like there's a lot of stuff about like looking and how you are in the eyes of this other person. Yeah, it's almost, gaze, right? you know, it's almost, okay, here's a fanciful notion, but like one reason why I think this story might be even older than it's already ancient date is that it seems almost to be like an ancestral memory of the human emerging from the animal, emerging from the endless night of the animal. Not that I know what it would be like to be a non-human animal, to be a dog or a cat or, or a pig or what have you. But nevertheless, I've always imagined that as human beings gain new and particularly human capacities, that they would look back at what you have just been with a shudder of horror, of, of a sense of emerging from a darkness to which you never want to return. But the darkness, of course, is always there, at least in your dreams. And what is the nature of that emergence of the human from the non-human animal? Of course, we are animals. It's ridiculous to talk about human beings and animals as if they're separate things. But, um, but, but, but what's the hallmark of that? And it seems to me it's like self-consciousness, the ability right. to, for example, see yourself in a displaced and estranged way, to see yourself as you must appear to another person. Yes. Or somebody who you love. Like the glance of someone who loves you transfigures you because you are able to kind of leap empathetically into their eyes and see yourself as something other than what you're capable of seeing yourself. But it's also could be a painful and terrifying process. And this is what happens to the beast that, you know, when he's like flinching, like he is in his animal self when he appears blood splattered at Belle's door. Yeah. Um, but and he's flinching from her sight because he's flinching from like what it is to be an animal in the sight of the human. Yes. Yes. It reminds me of that scene from the story of the Garden of Eden, right? When after they've eaten of the fruit, Adam and Eve are suddenly seeing for the first time the world as it is. And yeah, that they're naked. God, God comes down. Well, yeah, they saw that they were naked. They saw each other. They saw themselves through each other's eyes for the first yeah. time. And you yeah. can imagine and, that. And they try to cover up. That's how God knows they got into the apples. Right, exactly. It's like, who gave you the idea to put on clothes? Yeah. I like you naked. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it might be fanciful to do so, but you could imagine that the process of our emergence from animality was sporadic and we would often forget, right? Yeah. Um, and in a way, maybe we kind of all live in that to this day. We kind of forget- right. Our, our humanity sometimes we fall into just like really unthought through kind of routines or ruts of thinking or we keep doing the same thing over and over again we give in to you know whatever our passions or our appetites or whatever and we first temporarily forget that we're capable of moral rational thought i mean i, I just think that this kind of like this battle between the human and animal obviously was probably most dramatic at the beginning when when a certain type of primate was becoming what we now call human, but continues to this day in the soul of every person. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and this is kind of what's being played out before our eyes in this film, the way they see each other. Because the first time he sees her, she falls unconscious when she first sees him. 
And so he carries her into the bed, into her room, lays her down on the bed. And then she wakes up and then he says, don't look at me. And then with eyes closed in a semi-comical fashion, he just makes his way out of the room with his eyes closed, telling her not to look at, into his eyes. And it's not so much that he's concerned about, you know, maybe on one level, it's not so much that he's concerned about her being harmed by looking at him, but more concerned about the fact that if she looks at him, then he sees himself and he doesn't mm. want to see himself. Yeah. Um, because the weird thing about <laughs> mirrors in this world is that they do anything but show you your own reflection. They seem to show <laughs> you right. anything but until the end when she sees her, herself in it. So his mirrors are designed not to show you who you are. <laughs> so he doesn't want to see himself, but in her, because he loves her, he falls in love with her immediately. He immediately begins to see himself through her eyes and that sharing of gazes, that kind yeah. of like weird, almost magical transference of the gaze that happens in an erotic relationship and using yes. the word erotic in a more general sense is, I guess it's kind of a, the crux of this film in a certain way. And worth noting that the thing that breaks the enchantment, like it's very perfunctorily explained at the end that the reason that Prince Ardant... Um, Notice the similarity, by the way, to the name Avenant. Avenant yeah. and, uh, and it's still played by Jean Marais. Uh, so actually, Marais played three characters, if we're being precise about it. Yeah. You know, at the end, when Prince Ardant says to Belle why he became a beast, he's like, oh, well, there were some fairies that were mad because they didn't believe in magic, which has got to be the lamest explanation <laughs> ever. But, you know, this is a world in which explanations don't matter at all. Why were you a beast? Just because it's a fairy tale. Well, I just assumed that he tried to get to the treasure and he was changed, transformed into a beast by Diana, but that's not the explanation we're given. No, and and the thing that breaks him from this curse is a loving glance. Right. Not a kiss, not, you know, Belle falling in love with him, which I believe is more the, the emphasis in the Disney version. Of course, it is about falling in love, but what sets the seal on it is a glance. Right. Love as a kind of self-giving that suddenly allows you to exist as an entity that you can know, that you can see. As yeah. a, If you make your gift of yourself, you suddenly see what you are, right? Um, yeah. Because you're yeah. giving it, you're giving it up. So all of a sudden you're seeing, oh, this is what I stand to lose if I give myself over to this thing. This is what I might... So it, I mean, this seems to me to be the perfect mythic archetype of falling in love. It's a love story with all of the plot mechanics stripped away. All of the the wiring and plumbing that you need to make a story work. So you think about like any romantic comedy, like how do they meet and what's keeping them apart? What's the tension in the relationship? What brings them together? And you have to devise things like this. So, you know, if it's like the shop around the corner or the Tom Hanks like remake of it. What was that called? Um, You've got mail, I think. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just sort of like, oh, there are two people who fall in love writing to each other. And the challenge they have is how do they move from a virtual relationship to an actual relationship? You don't need any of that in a fairy tale. No, it's almost Beckettian simplicity. You know how Beckett would strip away all that circumstantial stuff to just get to the the yeah the heart of it kind of central tension of a of a story he kind of does that with the love thing yeah you know what a good iteration of the beauty and the beast motif in modern entertainment is in game of thrones 
the relationship between Daenerys Targaryen and Khal Drogo, the leader of the Mongol or Hun-like oh, yeah. tribe of the, the Dothraki, is very much done in that way. And it's I, I thought it was done, it was really ballsy the way they did it. I mean, basically, she's just handed over to this this Khal, which is right. a play on the idea of the Khan, right? These right. Uh, nomadic kings. And as a wife, and uh, basically just rapes her um, repeatedly until she learns how to turn his gaze to her, right? Like like sexually, that the position has mm. to switch so that they can see each other, and that's mm. what changes things. Mm. Um, and it's done in a, in a very kind of almost cynical way because ultimately what she wants, although she does love him, what she wants is to use his army to conquer Westeros. Right. But the whole process of how the the feminine and the masculine encounter each other and change each other yeah. in what amounts to a very dangerous game um, right. is very uh, nicely done in that show, I thought. And when we say feminine masculine should probably hark back to our episode on The Empress where we talked about gender and how a surface reading of the tarot or the I Ching would be like, well, this is all, you know, polarized gender archetypes. And how does that speak to our modern non-binary condition, or at least the non-binary condition of a good many people? And our argument then is that what feminine and masculine are is a good deal more elusive than we might be inclined to think and thinking of these as archetypes, as mysteries, arcana, rather than roles, as ingredients in the human rather than determinants. Yeah, um, sure. The, the point being that the journey that the beauty and the beast go on in this is a journey that all human beings go on when they encounter one another. Yes. Worth noting that Cocteau himself was gay and is creating a kind of um, a myth of what seems to be like heterosexual love, but I think he's after something quite a bit deeper that speaks to his own condition as well. Worth noting that Jean Marais, the leading man of this film, was Cocteau's lover and muse for years, Yeah, including at the time that this film was made. And so I don't think it's unreasonable to think that Cocteau is also making a film about himself, but it is a film that speaks to a kind of... Um, something deep that happens when you fall in love with somebody and you begin walking a path with them. I feel that it's kind of fortuitous that it's uh, very recently that we did our show on the moon. We talked about yes. how the moon is a pathway card, or at least can be, but it's a pathway beset by illusions, by phantasmagorical kind of hallucinatory deceptions, a weird and deceptive life, as Crowley put it. And that is a perfect way to describe what happens when two people fall in love. Yeah. And in fact, we have the figure of Diana in this film, who is a, a lunar goddess, right? Diana the Huntress, who is depicted in the statue with, inside the pavilion. She's got the crescent moon kind of tiara mm -hmm. on. Mm -hmm. And um, Diana famously was the goddess whom you couldn't see naked. If that were to happen to you, you would be transformed into a beast. So... Um, the, there again, the symbolism is at work there too. And and, mm. and it's strangely apropos that we would discuss this film after the moon card because we're in lunar territory right now very much. <laughs> Indeed. Very deep in the lunar, yeah.
something that I always try to do when we're talking about these things is to give people reasons not to run away, including in you know works of art that people might think like that's not my thing. I'm not into stuff like that. I think there's one thing that this film, I could imagine a lot of our listeners, people who are into our stuff, who maybe found us because of the Lost Highway episode or the Lovecraft episode or whatever, people are into uh, high octane weirdness, stuff that is weird, but like it looks weird. It feels weird. This film is subtle, and I think it would be very easy to dismiss it as just a kind of chocolate box picture, something pretty, pretty that's over ornate. The costumes like the Beast slash Prince Ardant's costume is like Baroque and it's it's like fucking Liberace costumery, you know? The whole, yeah, but the whole tone of it is so um, faint siècle, the whole thing, right? It's Absol- so, absolutely. Yeah. It's lush and it's just a product of a kind of hothouse aestheticism. And this is the kind of thing that really puts a lot of modern people off. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are at all sympathetic to like the punk aesthetic, an idea that an elaborate and technically sophisticated surface is a kind of a lie, that what you want to do is you want to peel away those kind of glittering, elaborate artificial surfaces and penetrate down to the a core of something authentic and something a little grittier and with a bit more of the stench of the human on it. If that's your thing, I mean, that's a totally valid aesthetic. And we've talked a lot about it and how, you know, like it has a lot of affordances, even for someone like myself, who for the most part is not about that aesthetic. I was just looking at the Wikipedia article. Okay, so this is pretty much the lamest possible research. (laughs) Just like I'm going to watch the movie and I'll read the Wikipedia article. Sorry. Um, I would like to have had more time to to do proper research, but that's not going to happen for another couple of months. But in the Wikipedia article, there's a couple of quotes from critics who have said things about it. In The Village Voice, there's an essay that appeared in 2002 uh, that's quoted saying that the film's visual opulence is both appealing and problematic. The author of this piece writes, full of Baroque interiors, elegant costumes, and overwrought jewelries, even tears turned to diamonds. The film is all surface and undermines its own don't trust a pretty face and anti-greed themes at every turn. And I read that and I'm like, dude, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Like you did not actually watch this film. You watched some version of this film in your head that answers some ideological presupposition you have about what art is and should be. But you didn't actually watch this film because you got distracted. You saw all that finery, that rich embroidered surface. And you thought, ah, this must be hiding something. This must be covering up some kind of truth. But no, you didn't watch this film the way a childhood, where your eyes would rest with delight and perfect satisfaction upon those surfaces. The surface is the depth. You know, it's like a line that Jane Foyer said about Hollywood musicals. Peel away the tinsel and you find the true tinsel underneath. (laughs) I love that. And that is something I love about this film. Yes. And I mean, it doesn't take much peeling away, I think, just a little bit to see the 
the weird depths of this film. I mean, we touched on some of those. We talked about the becoming animal of Bell and the becoming human of the beast. We touched on that when we discussed certain rifts in the film that are genuinely, I think, disturbing. If you are able to at least just relax into an aesthetic that is not of your time, right? Like, I mean, that's kind of like lesson one for art appreciation is being able to let go of certain tenets that seem kind of very important to a particular time when it comes to how artistic expression should be carried out and then to allow for different languages to exist. You know? But of course, if you're interested in, not, in mysticism or the history of religion or magic, there's plenty in this film for you as well. I mean, just starting with the symbolism of the rose, if you were to look at this film through an esoteric lens, you would find plenty there. Oh, um, for real. You're right. The rose as a symbol of God. I've, I've been thinking about this for a couple of days. Um, what the hell is the rose a symbol of? I mean, it's, it's always kind of facile when you talk about the rose. The symbol is a symbol of many things, right? Uh, did you want to say something? Yeah. I mean, thinking about the rose also in complement with the other four items of the the beast's magical power, the the tokens or the, 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 I, I don't know, there's a word that's escaping me here. His magical, I mean, if we are putting it in hermetic terms, we might call them magical weapons, you know, right. like the, the magician has the weapon of the dagger, the cop, the pentacle and the rod or wand. The beast's magical weapons are the rose, the glove, the mirror, the horse, and of course the key. And so, you know, you could kind of just as the four magical weapons of the magician gain all kinds of magical attributions, like cop is the element of water and the dagger is the element of air, etc. Likewise, you could think about what the rose means in complement with these other four magical weapons. Yes. And, and, and I've seen, I forget who said this, it might be Philip Glass actually, saying like, oh, well, then if you're thinking that way, then the rose is beauty. Beauty itself, you know, art, the artwork, and the glove is the nobility of the spirit of the creator. The the key is the the thing that unlocks the way. It's power and material manifestation. The mirror is the path. I forget what the horse is, but you know, you could kind of think of it that way, or you could come up with other attributions for these things. But the point is that the style of thinking is distinctly magical and kind of tyrotic. Yeah, absolutely. I want to give you a kind of quick interpretation of the film that is, I guess, an esoteric interpretation of it, which might at least validate our view that there are deep, weird depths to this film. So if you look at the story, it starts out in a world that is, as I said earlier, overcoded, a world where everything is transactional. You have a father whose mind is just completely preoccupied with business matters, how he's going to pay off his creditors. You have two daughters who are completely obsessed with, with hierarchy, with treating the servants like they're slaves, with accumulating luxury goods, with being seen in public. You have um, the whole world, the Vermeer world of the mortal is completely saturated with coded, determined meanings. Everything is what it is and everything has a significance that is predicated upon the individuals, right, in this hierarchical system. Then you have Belle, who is outside of that. She's the one who's taken up a position of subservience, even though she's 
a daughter of this gentleman, this uh, this merchant, she nevertheless stands outside of the kind of paradigm of that world. She's the servant. She's the one who won't get married. She's the one who will serve her father, etc. So when the father asks each of his daughters what they would like to receive as a gift from him, the first two daughters, I'm just going to call them the older daughters, say that they want, you know, a pet or a dress. I don't remember what they asked for, but finery. And Rose says, uh, sorry, Belle says, she's called Rose in some of the other versions. Belle says, I would like a rose because there are no roses here. So what we're being told here is that she wants something that comes from outside of this overcoated world that people have come to think is the whole world. She wants something from outside and she wants her father to go get it for her. She wants her father to see that reality is infinitely more than what he has come to believe it is. He's completely determined by this mercantile nexus of forces that in which he exists. And she's asking him to step out of that and to get something that doesn't exist in there, namely a rose. And of course, to find that, he has to get lost. He has to leave the precincts of the known and go into the unknown. And that's how he finds the rose. But the rose... It is a symbol of beauty and truth and goodness of, of that, which is miraculous, right? The rose is kind of the rose in the West is pretty much what the Lotus is in the East. It, it, the Lotus rises out of the swamp. The rose unfolds from within itself. It seems uncaused. It's completely contained within itself. That's why it's always, it's often used as a symbol of the cosmos of completion of totality. And, in itself unfolding, it gives us something that is causeless, that is miraculous, that is outside the uh, sensory motor causal chains to which we reduce all things, right? The logos, in a sense. And so, of course, the rose is thorned. It's always dangerous. Mm. It, it's mm. like seeing the face of God. You can't pluck a rose without pricking your finger. So when the merchant finds the rose, the beast appears, almost as though, almost as though he didn't, the beast didn't even exist before then appears as in a dream out of nowhere and lays down the conditions. Now, if you want to read this from a Gnostic perspective and you see the father in the mystical sense with several daughters and a son, in Gnosticism, you have Bythos, which is the, the unknowable God. And then the unknowable God emanates these aeons. And the last of the aeons, the youngest daughter in many Gnostic cosmological systems is called Sophia, wisdom. She's both a tragic figure and a, a salvific figure because she's the one who ends up creating or occasioning the creation of the broken world. But she's also the one who ends up saving that world, right? And so you could read this story from a Gnostic perspective as the descent of Sophia or wisdom into the underworld in order to save her father and to reestablish a balance that's been uh, broken. So, you know, reading it that way, it's anything but what you just read in the Village Voice article, you know? <laughs> Not that I would expect the Village Voice journalist to be interested in any of this, but I think that just as this fairy tale ex has existed for so long, because it speaks to deep, deep forces inside each of us, so these Gnostic and esoteric myths uh, have existed this long because they do the same thing. There's a symphonic kind of quality that emerges when you start to read these 
seemingly simple stories in light of these deeper, older traditions that shows you that deep down, even the most innocuous, seemingly superficial work of art can hide really, really deep depths. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.